This podcast is a production of Faith Living Church. If you like what you hear, join us for church sometime in our Plantsville, Connecticut location, Saturdays, 6 p.m. or Sundays, 9 and 11 a.m. or online anytime at faithlivingchurch.com. What I'd like to talk about is how, what love does for us, what God's love does for us and how God's love shapes our lives and continues to shape our life. Um, there should be, yeah, oh, there he is. Um, Ten bucks to anybody who knows this, who, the, who wasn't at last night's service, because I don't have that much money, um, who, who, who knows who this is. Anybody? Anybody? Exactly. Um, who here's a baseball fan? All right, I need help for being a baseball fan. So I'm, I'm a kind of a baseball fan, I'm like a Mets fan, so it's just basically my, my entire existence is, you know, would be like opening up the paper now, I'd just look and go, yeah, they still stink. So, um, so not a huge baseball fan, but this is, a, put, keep that photo up there if you could for me. Um, this guy's name here is Mordecai Peter Centennial Brown. Ring a bell? Oh yeah, Mordecai Brown. My kids will know Mordecai Brown because I've told the story to them a little bit um, to encourage them. Mordecai Brown, the reason why his second middle name is Centennial, he was born in 1876 in Indiana. Now, um, what was unfortunate, if you've ever met anybody uh, who has a mangled hand and they're from the Midwest, um, usually it was some type of a threshing accident. Right, some type of a farming accident, and uh, Joe, I think your your dad, right, had had same thing, right? Well, can you put up the second picture up there? That's Mordecai's hand. At uh, 12 years old, he tripped and he fell into a either was a feed chopper or a thresher or some kind of farm equipment that farming is apparently insanely dangerous, and uh, and it chopped off his finger right down to his 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 index finger down to the knuckle and then shaved this flesh off of the one part of this finger and then mangled his palm. Now it's 1888, right? Because he's 1876, he's 12 years old. So doctors did the best they could to kind of repair some stuff that was in there. But for the most part, you know, Mordecai, they weren't going to repair his finger, that's for sure, because uh, that was threshed someplace. And, um, and so he had, no, he had no finger, no index finger, and then his, and his hand was mangled. And then if you look, You'll see that it's off at angles. What in a weird, tragic thing, he was actually recovering from that surgery and fell and broke his middle finger and then his his pinky finger, and they were reset incorrectly. So for the rest of his life, you can see his middle finger was kind of off to the side, and his pinky finger would never straighten out. That's the way his hand was his entire life. Now, the, the middle thing, and the reason why we know who Mordecai Brown is, is the middle finger, this middle picture, you can see him holding a baseball, right? You can see kind of the stub of, of his finger and his middle finger kind of off to the side, mangled like that, off, off on the one side. Mordecai was a pretty good athlete, apparently. Not a great athlete, but he was a, a pretty good athlete. Um, and, uh, and he wanted to play baseball, and he loved baseball as a kid. The problem was, is they were like, hey, Mordecai, you can't, dude, you can't. this isn't in the historic record, but I picture it like this, like, Mordecai, dude, you can't, you can't play baseball because every time you throw the ball, it goes off at this crazy weird angle. And then somebody went, hey, Mordecai, every time you throw the ball, it goes off at this crazy weird angle. And so Mordecai Brown worked at being able to throw a ball with only three fingers. He's known in history as three-fingered Brown. And he developed what was called a knuckle curve, which looks like a fastball. I'm, I'm not going to look like a girl. I'm going to do it left-handed. Looks like it's coming over like a fastball, but you actually have to hold it like a knuckleball, and it curves and breaks at the same time. So it curves and then breaks and does this knuckleball thing and drops right off. And apparently it was amazing once he learned how to control it. Mordecai Brown played in the Major League Baseball for 19 years. And he's in the Baseball Hall of Fame. He was inducted in the Hall of Fame in, uh, in 1948. Uh, played for 12 years, mostly for the Cubs. And um, he had uh, two World Series championships under his belt. And 239 wins. It's a lot. It's a lot of wins. A lot of wins, especially in the early 1900s when they didn't have like specialty relief pitches where you go in for five innings and then you'd have a setup man and a closer. I mean, they would pitch the whole time, right? Um, Mordecai Brown is also in the, in the record books for his ERA. Now, those of you who don't know what an ERA is, earned run average, it's a measure of how good a pitcher is, how many 
people are hitting runs off of you while you're pitching. For me, it'd be like 35, right? But, uh, but what's it, you guys who are baseball guys, what's like a really good ERA? Anything under three. Anything under three is a, a good ERA. Okay, what would be a good career ERA? I mean, you start when you're young, you, you get older, you might not be so great at the end of it. What's a good career ERA? Three and a quarter, something like that. Okay, anybody have any idea what Mordecai Brown's career over 19 years, over 19 years, what his career ERA was? 2.06. And all the baseball guys go, Awesome. You know what that is? That is the lowest earned run average of any pitcher in the history of baseball for anyone who has more than 200 wins. You can look it up. Any pitcher who has more than 200 wins, Mordecai Brown's at the top. And nobody knows who he is, right, because it happened like 100 years ago. Now, my kids know this story because whenever they comp would complain, I would bring up Mordecai Brown. And I would go, oh, oh, that's so sad. That's so sad that you have to work and put yourself through school. Oh, so sad. Mordecai Brown had three fingers. What's your complaint? Right? Now, that would be my thing to them. But that's not what I want to talk with you about, about um, the reason why I brought up Mordecai Brown. You can use that with your kids, by the way. You can be like, Mordecai Brown had three fingers. What's your complaint? Right? But that's not the reason, the specific reason why I'm bringing it up today. The reason why I want to talk about it is Mordecai Brown was apparently a pretty good athlete. Maybe even a very good athlete. But was he major league baseball quality athlete? Ah, nobody knows. But what happened was, is what seemed like a tragedy, what seemed like pain, what seems like something awful, actually did something in his life. It not only gave him a career, not only made him famous, but it put him with people, and it put him in a circle of people that he would never, probably never, have reached had he not had that tragedy in his life. And so what I want to talk about today about the idea of love shaping our lives is this, is that God uses our gifts and talents. And he uses, and he uses different things in our life. Let, let, I'll give you an example. There are people sitting in this room, people within the sound of my voice, I'm certain that your socioeconomic status is higher than mine. You, you make more money. You live in a different neighborhood. You've, you've got, you know, you, you travel to places like, that are warm, like Tahiti and, and, and Fiji and places like that. And, and that's great. And then there are other people sitting in the same room that your socioeconomic status is, is lower than mine. Your, your house is smaller. Maybe you don't own a home. Uh, maybe, you know, the best you've ever done for vacation. These guys are going to, you know, the Bahamas and Tahiti. And, you know, I'm going to North Carolina. And maybe, you know, you've only ever, you know, driven to Maine, right? Or not even taken a vacation. And so sometimes who we are and what we do and our gifts and talents set the, 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 the job that we have, they set the, uh, the area of the town or country that we live in. They set the, the people that we hang out with. We make, this makes sense, right? And sometimes our gifts and talents can take us this way. Can pain and tragedy and difficulty do the same? Have we ever thought that the things that seem like they take away from our life, make us less than, are in actuality not something that is making us less than, but just changing our shape and changing the, the, the sphere of influence in our life. Could it be that this is true? And I've said this to, to some people before, that while God is not the author of pain, he certainly will use it in our life. So we're going to look at that today. And by the start of it, I want to I start with um, what you guys know is Pastor Ron's favorite scripture. As a matter of fact, he's told me that if he were to ever get a tattoo, it would be the scripture. So I think we should all encourage him to get a tattoo because I think that would be funny. Um, and it's Romans 8.28, right? And let's just slow down and think about a couple of different aspects of this. Now, he says here in Romans 8.28, and if you've been part of Faith Living Church, you probably have this memorized by osmosis at least, Right? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, 
that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Think about what he's saying here. He says, for we know that, that all things work together for good. That doesn't mean that all things are good, does it? That, let's be clear. That doesn't mean that all things are good. Some things just stink. But he, God says, I can pick up something that, is, that is, is terrible, awful, bad, and I can take it and I can generate it. That's what working together. I can, I can repurpose it. I can generate it together for good. Now, it's interesting because, well, maybe I'll just be the only one in the room who finds it interesting because I'm a geek, but there you have it. It's interesting that there are two different words in the, in the Greek that we translate as good. And, and the one translation of good is, is good because it's, because it's beautiful, good because it's extraordinary, good because it's pleasant. And then there's another kind of good that means good because it's intrinsically good, meaning it's good at its core. Its, its essence is goodness. Now, let's think about this. Um, sometimes we come across words and we just think we know what they mean. What does good mean? Give me some examples. What does good mean? That's weird, right? Like, mmm, pizza's good. You can tell me what's good, but what, what does good mean? Nice. Nice. Fine. 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 Kind. Pleasant. Um, beneficial. Acceptable. Acceptable. It's good, right? The Bible uses this word that it is intrinsically good. It is to our benefit. It is kind. It is acceptable. It is pleasant. But it says that it's intrinsically so and separates it from the outward appearance of goodness to being good because it's good. What this means is, is it might not look good. It might not be beautiful. It might be lumpy and bumpy, but it's good. And sometimes circumstances in our life feel like that. They don't look good. They don't feel good. It might actually hurt, like Mordecai getting his finger chopped off. But they're actually good. Because God can take that thing. Because if God is there and he is for us, he can take that thing and he can use it. Because he says here, he says, he says according to his purpose, for, for whom he foreknew, that would be us, he predestined us. And he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what the predestination is. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Why? So that Jesus would simply be the firstborn among many brethren. That we would be able to call Jesus our brother. And if you think about what Jesus did, when he looked at circumstances, he, in, in, in Hebrews 12, 1, it says he hung on the cross and despised that shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him. And if you think about what that is, it says, for you and me, Jesus was thinking about you and me and saying, because of that, because I will now be redeeming all of mankind back to God, because of that, this is nothing. And it changed his perspective. And so oftentimes what we need is we need to have the perspective of what is happening eternally and what might be happening even through pain and suffering. I want to be clear about something. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. What he's saying here when he says every good and perfect gift, if I could open this water bottle, it means that if it's something good, it comes from God. And if it's not good, it doesn't come from God. God is not the author of pain. God also doesn't make a promise. I want you to hear this. It says that there is no shadow of turning, no variableness in God. What that means is that if God has spoken something to you, if God has promised you something, he has is, he is, not promised you something with his fingers crossed behind his back. You would never hear God say something to you and then, and then look around his back and see that he's just lying. That, that's, not how, that's not how God works. And it also means that God is not a receiver of faces, Means he doesn't look and say, oh, I know you, come close. Oh, I know you, stay away. It doesn't matter if we're, it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter um, if you're rich or poor. God says anyone who comes to him, he says yes to. And, and to not do that would be for him to not be God. Now, James goes on in, uh, in, in, in chapter 1. 
And let's look at verses 2, starting in verse 2. This is why it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, that word trial there can also be translated temptation and will be so uh, down in verse 12. Count it all joy when you find yourself in hardship. Count it all joy when things go wrong. Count it all joy when things stink. Count it when you fail. Count it when bad things happen. Count it when there's tragedy and hurt and pain. When it feels like you're boxed in and tied up. Count that as joy. That's what James says. Now, that means that it's a conscious decision on our part to do that. But here's the reason why. He says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. The testing of our faith produces patience. It it creates a different perspective in my mind to say, I can wait this out. It's okay because God is faithful. And if God is faithful, I can stay here knowing that he's faithful and it's okay. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it stinks. Yes, it's bad. I'm not denying that. But I can stay in it and be through it because I know that God is faithful to what he said. Just ask a question. How, how long was it? Anybody know this? How, how long it was between the, the time that God promised Abram a son and the time that Isaac was born? Anybody know? Because it wasn't, it wasn't two years. It wasn't, it wasn't two hours in, in, with commercial breaks. Like, you know, did anybody know? From the time he promised him a son... To the time that Isaac was born, 35 years. 35 years. Now, Abram screwed up. Abram and and Sarai screwed up in the the middle of that, right? That's how we got Isaac, right? A couple of other bad things happened, but a lot of really good things happened. But, But God saw Abraham's heart and called him the father of faith. Because faith and patience are tied together. Because if we're faithful... And we're, and, we're, and we're full of faith, we'll wait because God has said he would do something. It's fear that reaches out and tries to control and grasps, and grasps stuff for ourselves. He says, count it all joy, knowing that you're, the testing of your faith produces patience. How can we have patience produced in us, in our faith, if our faith isn't tested? This is a word to you, millennials. Serious. If our faith is never tested, how can it grow? And and if the only thing that ever happens is good and plenty and and wonderful stuff, how will we ever know if it's for real? But here's what it says. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. See, See that link there? God says that he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. How does that happen? The way that it happens is the testing of our faith produces patience. The patience has its perfect work. And then we become mature, complete, lacking nothing. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, a lot of times people think that this scripture here means that if I lack wisdom, I should just go to God. That's true. But specifically in the context, it means if any of us lacks wisdom about what in the world is going on with our life. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, not doubting, not going, God, why are you doing this to me? Not accusatory. Not, God, I don't even think that you're there anymore because things are bad. Things are bad in my life. I don't even think you're there anymore. That's not what he says. He says, God, if the only thing I know is that Jesus Christ is your son, then that becomes my anchor to the ground. Like we sang in that song. And once I have that, then nothing else matters. And, 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 and the circumstances can swirl around me. But I'm not going to be moved from this. He says, he says this, let him ask with nothing doubting. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea. Tossed back and forth by the wind. I believe God. I don't believe God. I believe God. I don't believe God. I'm going to wait on God. I'm going to take control of it myself. What happened with Abraham when he tried to take care of himself? Not good stuff, Right? He says, for let that man not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Then he goes on here. And at first it might not sound like this is, like this is in context, but it is. He says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. 
Let the poor among you glory in your exaltation. What does that mean? You're like, I'm poor. I don't have good food. I don't have a good place to live. I don't have a nice car. I don't have any of these things. What do you mean? What, what is my exaltation? The exaltation is that this world is not all there is. Right? And one day, you have a, 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 a mansion in heaven in a place where there's streets of gold. This is not all there is. Then he goes on and he says, let the rich in his humiliation. And he explains this a little bit more. Because as a flower of the field, will pa- he'll pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with his burning heat than it withers the grass. The, its, flowers, it, its flowers falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. And some of us go, good, get those rich guys. Tax the rich. The only way they got rich was by oppressing the poor. Uh, I won't get into the economics and politics of it, but that's just flat out wrong. God doesn't love rich people any more than he loves poor people. He just loves people. And if you're rich, hit me up afterwards. I'd like to hang out. Um, <laughs> listen, the reason why he says that about the rich, what is the, why does he say that rich people need to glory in their humiliation and then goes on and explains it? What is a, if you're rich, what is, what, is the temp, what is the temptation if you're poor? The temptation if you're poor is to say, God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. I have to take control of my own destiny, and I'll do things to try to get out of this. Or I'll just give up because it must mean that I'm nothing. And, and God says, don't do that. You'll one day be exalted. What's the temptation if you're rich? The temptation if you're rich, or if things are going well in your life, the temptation is to, ready, is to ascribe the blessings of God to my character. I am rich not because God has blessed me. I am rich and things are going well because I am good. And, and I am great. And I am God. And you can hear the echoes of the serpent in the garden, Right? I'm doing well because I'm good. I've got it together. I went to the right schools. I studied. I pulled myself up by my own bootstrap. Not even knowing that your ability to even read if you went to college is given to you by God. Your ability to walk the campus if you went to a good school. Your ability to get up and walk across the campus was given to you by God. And that's why he explains. He says, you need to look, if if you're rich and wealthy, and say, this world isn't all there is. And one day I'll be with God. And so these blessings, I can have these things without them having me, right? And so he says to the poor, remember, this isn't all there is. To the rich, remember, this isn't all there is. Don't be tempted to go away from God. And then he says, blessed is the man who endures temptation, who endures that trial. And he says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. He's talking about these trials again. Why is he saying that? Because trials and temptations will come. And sometimes they might be packaged in greatness. And sometimes they may be packaged in tragedy and pain. But he says we're to endure those things. Because when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Understand this, that, that, that everything we're looking at winds up being a trial or a test. But God is allowing those things into our life, not for the purpose of going, see, I told you so. That God is allowing those things into, into our life for two purposes. One, so that we become more and more like Jesus. And two, so that he can reward you. God is for us. All the time. In everything, God is for us. He says, let no one, and let's be clear about this again, once again, God does not, is not the author of evil and pain and tragedy. He says, let no one say when he is tempted for evil, this is a different temptation, that I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. He doesn't tempt anyone to sin. He doesn't tempt anyone with evil. But God does allow the things in our life. Perspective is the key. So, God will allow things to happen in our life. And let's talk about the pain and the tragedy part first. God will allow things to happen in our life for two purposes. One, for you and your good. For you personally. Um, It's helpful. And so we're going to look at two kings in in the Old Testament. The first and second king of Israel. Cool? Uh, First king of Israel was a guy named Saul. Now, long story. Um, 
Israel didn't have a king. And they weren't supposed to have a king. And God's like, you're not supposed to have a king. You're supposed to look to me. And he had, they had prophets and they had judges and people to help them along the way. But they weren't supposed to need a king. But everybody's like, no, we want to be like everybody else. We feel stupid. We want to be like everybody else. And finally, God says to Samuel, he says, hey, listen, Samuel, they're not rejecting you as a prophet. They're rejecting me as ultimately as their king. So we'll give them a king. This is what happened. It says, first Samuel, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. The son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son, I gotta put my glasses on for this one, <clears throat> the son of Becherath and the son of Aphia, a Benjamite. He was a mighty man of power. This guy was a mighty man of power, which means that he was probably strong and, and powerful as a man, but it also meant that he was, he was also influential, one of the leaders of the tribe of Benjamin. He was probably wealthy, looked up to. People wanted to be like him. This man had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. That's how Saul is described when we're first introduced to him. He was described as his outward appearance. Nothing about who he is, just that he was a choice and handsome son of a powerful and well-known figure within the tribe. Kid went to the right schools, came, went, lived in the right neighborhood, had the right Chariot, whatever they would drive back then when they, got, when they were 16 and they got their chariot license. It says that, let's uh, take a second and pray for these guys. Um, Father, we don't know uh, even what, well, it sounds like a fire truck. And so, Lord, we don't know what the emergency is, uh, but we know that you do. And we ask, Father, for two things. One, that you would watch over and protect the, thing that are in need, the people that are in need of help, but that also that you'd watch over and protect the people who are going to help as well, that your will would be done in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, it says there was, he, there was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the other people. That means every other person, he was, they were only up to his shoulders. He was taller than, he was head and shoulders above the rest. And he was the best looking guy in all of Israel. I mean, Right? Here's a guy, comes from a, a wealthy and powerful family. He's good looking. He's tall. He was probably athletic. He could probably sing and tell good jokes. He, you know, whatever, right? He was like that guy, right? You know that guy, right? He was probably that guy, and he looked the part. How'd that work out? Not so good. Not so good at all. It almost, it didn't work out good from the jump. Like, like right when they went to do it, things started to go wrong. And some of his very first choices, things were going bad. It, it worked out so badly that, and I know that there's time that passes, that it goes from 1 Samuel 9 to 1 Samuel 16. Samuel is anointing someone else's king. Like it's like, eh, eh, not good. Like it went so bad that first he screws up really bad. And, and Samuel has to come to him and say, listen, you've messed up so badly that, that you get to be king, and I'll honor that, but you're not going to get a dynasty. You're, like your kids won't, someone else is going to be king after you. You don't get to, that, your kids won't be king. And then later, not even that, that much later, he messes up so badly again that God sends Samuel back to him and goes, listen, you don't even get to be king anymore. Like, we're going to change this. This is so bad. So now we find... For Samuel 16, he goes to anoint somebody else. This would be David, by the way. So he sent and brought him in. Now, the story here is that Samuel goes to this guy's house. God says, hey, look, go into this small little village, in this small little town, to this dude, and he's got a bunch of sons. Have him line up his sons, and then I'll tell you which one's going to be the next king of Israel. So he goes to this house, has a meal with them. Like, it's Samuel. He's famous. He's the prophet. He's not a prophet. He's the prophet. When they talk about the prophet in, in the whole nation of Israel, they mean that guy, right? He's the most famous dude in Israel, and he's coming to your house. This guy has a meal for him. He brings out his sons, and he goes to oldest to youngest, and he goes, this must be the guy. And God's like, no. This must be the guy. No. 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 And finally gets to the last one. He goes, this must be the No. And Samuel's sitting there. He's going, well, I'm pretty sure God told me to come to this house. And one of the sons would be it, but 
none of these guys are in. He go, and he actually looks at me and goes, do you have any more sons? Am I missing someone? And the dad says, he goes, yeah, well, actually, we do have one more son. Think about this. Think about if you're that kid, right? And they're like, the prophet is coming. One of you guys is going to be anointed as the next king, but you don't even get to come to dinner. And he had him out back. Um, some scholars actually believe that one of the reasons why David was out there was he was an illegitimate son. Whoops, little TMZ action happening, right? And so anyways, he goes, yeah, I, I, got, I, got, I got another son, but he's just kind of, he's out back um, tending the sheep. He goes, well, didn't I tell you to bring all the sons? Bring him here. So he brings David in. He's a teenager. Brings David in and says, so he went and brought him. He was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. He was, he was you know, fair skin, rosy cheeks, beautiful eyes. And he was good looking. Also described very similar. It doesn't say he was tall and all that kind of stuff like that. Clearly wasn't as good looking as Saul. But he was a good looking kid. So describes him very similar to the way they described Saul. True? And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is the one. How'd that work out? Well, it worked out so well that Jesus is called the son of David. It worked out so well that God said that David was a man after his own heart. It worked out so well that most of the book of Psalms is written by David. That's his songbook. He was, he was a guitar player. They called it a lyre. Basically, it was a little lyre thing. Think of it as a guitar, right? He's a guitar player, songwriter. Most of the book of Psalms, that's his, those are his lyric sheets, right? It worked out great, right? What made the difference? Well, with Saul, they went, pick him. He goes, great. They go, come on, you're our king. Let's go to battle. This is going to be great. With David... What happened? Well, I mean, first, there was like good stuff, right? There was David and Goliath. David looks promising. And, and God had sent a, an evil spirit. Weird that God would send an evil spirit. God sent an evil spirit to torment Saul. And he did it so that the only cure was when David played his guitar. So David got to hang out in the king's court. Not, no pressure on him. All you do is hang out, play guitar, sing a little bit. Saul stopped freaking out, but he got to see how, he got training on how the, the, the court was supposed to operate because he got to be there. And then David got opportunity. Saul said, hey, why don't you go out with, you know, you did pretty good against Goliath. Why don't you go out against the Philistines again? He did really well, and he did even better. He did even better. Ultimately, ultimately Saul offered David his daughter's hand. So now David's, right, David's. He's going from nothing. He knows he's already been anointed king. Saul doesn't know it yet, but he knows he's already been anointed king. Now he's like, he's a, he's a war hero. He's getting the girl, right? This all seems really good. Anybody know what happened next? Saul didn't like it. He tried to kill him. Not once, but a lot. Starts chucking spears at him in the office. This would be like workplace violence. Like, starts chucking spears. Tried to actually chuck a spear at him and kill him. David ducks it, doesn't know what to do, hangs around, chucks another, right? So David starts running. And the next thing David knows, he's running for his life. His fiancée is given to somebody else to marry. He has to move his entire family out of the country, actually to, to the enemy country, to, the, to, the, to, to a different country. They went to Moab. And he's chased around by the authorities, chased around by the army. And he winds up living in caves. And the only people he comes across are other ruffians, other people that were hanging out in the wilderness because they were running from the law. Those become his friends. Anybody know how long that took before David was made king? How long he was running around in the wilderness getting chased how long his parents and his family had to live in another country for fear of their death. Anybody know? Seven years. Seven years. Seven years. He's on the run for seven years. He's living in caves for seven years. Most of the book of Psalms was written uh, in, the, in a cave. Well, he's like, God, what in the world is happening to me? Read it. And then he comes back to it. But I know you promised this. Seven years before Saul is killed in battle. And then did he become king? Oh, no, he didn't become king then. He became king over Benjamin and Judah, 
but didn't become king over the other ten tribes because they didn't want him, because they thought that, that, that there was another guy that should be king. And there's a civil war. And it's another seven years before he actually becomes king over all of Israel. Fourteen years of, 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 of running, of, of being chased, of being rejected, of, of having bad things happen to him, of having his friends killed, of, of, of having civil war, and everybody's against him. Fourteen years before he gets what, what Samuel had poured the oil over his head for when he was younger. Why? Why? Because God had to drag the David out of David before he could be a king that wasn't like Saul. Because if you just put him in, danger is he'd be just like Saul. So he had to drag the David out of him until there was nothing left so that he could fill it with himself so that when he sat on the throne, he could be a man just after God's own heart. Now, was it perfect for David? No. But God called him a man after my own heart. God said that, that uh, someone, he made him a promise that someone will sit on your throne forever and the Messiah will come through you. So God used what looked like, and I guarantee you, now looking, looking back when David's there in a palace and everything's going well, it seems like he could probably go, oh, yeah, yeah, this is great. But do you think that he knew that while he was running around in the caves? Well, he knew that he had a promise from God that he would be king over Israel. He knew that. That's what he knew. And he knew that he could trust God to bring it about in God's timing and not his. He didn't know when it would stop. He didn't know how it would stop. He didn't know any of those things. But he knew that God was faithful. That's what he knew. And so he was willing to be dragged through the wilderness, chased through the wilderness for 14 years in order to make it come to pass. Amazing. Here's the thing. That's one for you and your good. God wants, God wants you to inherit the promises that he's made to you. I'm telling you, if God has spoken to your, into your life and he's made a promise, he will bring it to pass. And he wants that to happen. But he wants, and he wants it to happen. Bad timing. He wants it to happen, but he wants it to do it in a way that not just honors him, but is for your good. God is for you. But I want to tell you something. It's not just about you. This is really important. It's not just about you. That means that the gifts and callings of God are not just about you. It also means, listen to me, it also means that pain and tragedy and hurt and loss is not just about you either. No, okay, fine. I wrote this down to make sure I got this right. God is faithful and he uses our experiences, good and bad, to shape us in a way that makes us closer to him and connected to the very people who need our testimony for their salvation. He shapes us in a way that connects us to the very people who need our testimony for their salvation. When we talk about a sphere of influence of of people in our lives, we think of it like a sphere. We think of some math project where everything is just circular and smooth. And it's not, is it? Life isn't like that. It's, it's lumpy and misshapen. And, 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 and you have gain over here and you have loss over here. And what I want to tell you is that what you might think of as loss, God says, it's not loss. I'm just moving you in this direction, because what happens is as people observe and people see you living a faith-filled life in the midst of loss, what's happening is, is I'm bringing you into contact with people that need your testimony for their salvation. I'm bringing light into darkness so that darkness can see that there's hope. It's never just about us. It's first for you and your good, but it's second for God's glory and the good of others. And ultimately, even that's our good because the highest calling of a human being is to worship God and to bring glory to him. And the more we bring glory to God, the more like Jesus we are. 
and the more like our original design. I want to read in the, in the next 10 minutes or so, I want to read some scriptures to you. And one of them is Psalm 126. And we're going to be very um, uh, uh, um, bold and read the entire chapter. Cool? It, it's, it's like eight verses. All right, here we go. Psalm 126. It says, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who, who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Hugh continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing. <coughs> Excuse me. Shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Cool, right? Let's put this in context. Chronologically, this psalm should be one of the last psalms chronologically in the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 126, whatever, but it's actually chronologically written. It, should, it belongs chronologically really around the book of Nehemiah and Ezra. Because what this psalm is talking about is the return of the, of the Jews from captivity in Babylon back to Jerusalem. That's when this song was written. Now let's look at it real closely and see what it, what it says to it. It says, when, they, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion... That's how we know. We brought back the captivity. You know, to set this straight, what this means is um, first the ten, the ten tribes were destroyed by Assyria. Then there's just what was called Judah, which would be, uh, uh, there was just Judea, which was Judah and Benjamin. That was what was left. Jerusalem was in there. And uh, the Babylonians came and captured Jerusalem. And then they came back and destroyed burnt it down, destroyed it. And this is where the book of Daniel starts, right? So they, they took these people, Jeremiah would end, and Daniel starts, and they took these people. Now, Isaiah had prophesied to them and said, listen, you guys have, turn, you guys have turned away from God, and so you're going to go into captivity to a pagan king. And he said, you'll be in captivity for 70 years, and then I'll bring you back. 70 years is a long time. That's a really long time. 70 years can make you forget. Like 70 years would be 1950, right? 1952, 1951. 1951 was a long time ago, right? Lots changed. I wasn't born in 1951. Lots changed, right? So he goes, you'll be in in Babylon under this pagan king for 70 years, and then I'll bring you back. Now, what happened was, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on, we won't get into that, but what happened was, at the end of 70 years, the Babylonian Empire had fallen, the, the Medes and Persians had taken over, and there was a guy named Cyrus, which, by the way, was mentioned in the book of Isaiah. He mentioned the king Cyrus by name years before he was ever born. Okay, so here he is, and, and, and Cyrus says to Nehemiah, he says, yeah, you can go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And then once he went back and rebuilt Jerusalem, they allowed the, the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem. They'd been hanging out in a, in a camp at the, at the edge of a river, little town that they had built at the edge of the river. And they were just waiting, and they were in captivity in a pagan land. And now they get to go back to their homeland. Some of them had never even been there before, but they get to go back to their homeland. It's about 600 miles between Babylon and Jerusalem, which means they walked. It probably took two, two and a half months for thousands of people to make their way, which from modern-day Iraq up over into Jerusalem. And here's what it says. It says, when we, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion... We were like those who dream. It felt real. We're walking. I can't even believe this is happening. Imagine that. I I cannot. uh, It's prophecy being fulfilled in my life. I, I can't believe this was happening. It says, and our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. So thousands of people walking across the Middle East, laughing and singing and praising God. Because I can't even believe this is happening. And this is what it says. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Do you know what happened? Other people in the Babylon, in the, now the, the Medes and Persian Empire, other people were watching them go, and what they were saying was, God is true. Their God is true. Because he, prof- he told them he would bring them back, and there they go. God has done great things for them. 
Do you think maybe God could do great things for me? See that? God was using, God was using their patience, their faithfulness. He was using that as a witness to other people. Because a lot of the people in that, in that area were also captives at various times of the Babylonian and the Median Persian Empire. He says, God has done great things for them. Don't you think that, don't you think that, that whatever you might be going through or whatever you might have gone through, uh, maybe it's the loss of a loved one or a business has failed or, or a health tragedy or, or something personal that's happened to you, don't you think that people around you are watching you? Don't you think that, especially if they know you're a Christian, don't you think they're watching you? I had a guy ask me this last night. I said, what do you think they're, they're hoping? What do you think they're hoping? If they know you're a Christian and they see you're in, in pain and tragedy, what do you think they're hoping? And some people say, and, and, and I've heard this a lot, they'll say, they hope that you screw up. And I'm like, no. They hope that you win. You know why? Because they hope you're right about Jesus. Because if you and me, flawed and failed as we are, can be rescued, that means there's hope for them too. And let me tell you something. That is the absolute truth. Even the people that are railing against Christianity, they hope that it's true. Because if it's not, then there's nothing and we all just turn to dirt. But if it's true... If someone like you can be forgiven, then maybe I could be forgiven too. Amen. Think about that. God, God, could God actually bring pain and tragedy, or not bring it, could God take pain and tragedy, though he doesn't cause it, pick it up, use it for your good, and then use it as a testimony for other people? I can tell you that he's done that in my own life. I know it's true. I think if you would think about it, if you've been a Christian long enough, you'd know it's true as well. We need to have a different perspective on, 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 on things that happen in our life. Let me give you an illustration of that. Part of the, part of the bad stuff that had gone on with Israel is that the Assyrians had, like I said, had taken and destroyed the northern ten tribes of Israel. And what the Assyrians had done, which was their practice, is whenever they took over an area, they would then depopulate that area and then bring back other captives from other areas and kind of mix and mingle them with some of the people that remained. And so they kind of get this mixed multitude. What they're hoping is that they'd get kind of this homilgated Assyrian look. Well, then the Assyrian Empire fell, and you were left with people who, who, who were kind of half Jews, half not Jews, living in, in what was used to be... Um, Israel, and this is where the Samaritans came from. And one of the reasons why the, the Jews in uh, Judea looked down on the Samaritans was because they're like, you're not even fully Jewish. And they're, they're, because they've been separated there, they brought in some pagan beliefs. Anyways, it was really weird. Their worship was a little off. It was a little on, a little off, that kind of thing. And, um, and so they looked down on them, wouldn't even talk with, with the Samaritans. But the interesting thing was is that in order to get from, in order to get from Galilee to Jerusalem, you could either go a long way around or you could go right through Samaria. And Jesus, because he liked to freak out his disciples, um, quite often went through Samaria. And so here we're going to pick this up in John chapter 4. He says, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard and made Jesus, um, had heard, heard that Jesus made, had made and baptized more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. And he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sichar. Near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which means it's noon. It's noon in the Middle East. What do we know? It's hot, right? So when you came to draw water from the well, when did you come to draw water from the well? Did you do it in the heat of the day? No, you did it in the morning or you did it in the evening. You didn't do it in the heat of the day. And it was a kind of a communal thing. Everybody came out to draw water from the well. And so all the, and this is typically um, women who would do this. And so all the women would walk out and they'd have this thing. And they'd have these water pots on and they'd go out and they'd draw well and they'd talk and gossip and whatever, you know, people do when they hang out together and they're waiting for one person at a time to draw water. And, hey, what are you doing with your kids? Hey, what are you doing with my kids? You know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, what about the school system and what about the weather and whatever. Okay, that kind of stuff, right? 
and, that, and that, that would be where some fellowship would happen, and they'd do this. But here's Jesus, and he's sitting there in the middle of the day, and his disciples go into town to buy some food. It says, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. I just thought that the women of Samaria would go out to draw water in the, in the morning or in the evening when the weather was cool. Why was she coming out to draw water in the middle of the day? We're about to find out. But what do we know about that woman? We know that she wasn't connected to anybody else in the, she was ostracized from polite society, Sicharian society. She didn't have friends. She wasn't part of the group of women that went out in the morning and the evening and talked about their kids and what they were doing in school. And they didn't talk about that. She went out alone in the middle of the day when it was hot. And what does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't go, oh, let me tell you good things. He goes, give me something to drink. The woman said, of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She goes, why are you even talking to me? She also had a little bit of an attitude, huh? Don't you think? She's like, what are you even talking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We don't talk to each other. And you're a guy. And I'm a woman all by myself. Why are you even talking to me? Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that said to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Then she skirts this issue and starts to think about the outside, like how difficult this is, right? She's still focused on her circumstances. She's not focused on the fact that Jesus is sitting in front of her. And she said, you've got nothing to draw with. The water is deep. Where can you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us his well and drank it from himself? Who do you think you are? Basically what she's saying. Jesus said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. But the water shall be in, that I give him shall be, become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Listen to her answer and think what she's thinking. She says, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor have to come here to draw. Is she, is she thinking about what he said yet? Living water, stuff like that? She goes, no. But if, you, if you've got some kind of special like QVC water that you found, can you give that to me so I don't have to do this anymore? Because every time, think about this, every time I walk out here, it hurts. Every time I walk out here to get water, it hurts. It hurts because it's hot. It hurts because it's dusty. It hurts because it's hard work. But it hurts because I'm alone. It hurts because I have no friends. It hurts because every time I come out here, I'm, I'm reminded that I'm nothing, and everybody tells me that. So if you can give me something so I don't have to come out here again, that would be awesome. So what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't go on a soliloquy about living water and explaining it or anything like that. He just says this, go call your husband and have him come here. Switches like that. He's just trying to get right to the point of her heart. And she says, I have no husband. Probably didn't have any kids either because no one was with her. Jesus said to her, you have done well to say, yeah, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one that you're with right now is not your husband. In that, you spoke truly. Let's stop for a second and ask what we know about this woman. She's been through five guys who have been her husband. If you know somebody who's been married five times, all of a sudden you're like, uh, 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 right? She's been married five times and divorced five times. The only way that you get divorced five times is the husbands have divorced you. She couldn't divorce them. The husbands have divorced her. Now, maybe they were divorcing her for adultery. Maybe they were divorcing her for something else. Maybe they were divorcing her because she was barren. And now she's with a guy and she's living with him. She's with that guy and she's living with him, and that means that he won't even give her the benefit of his name. He won't even give her the covering of calling her his wife. He just wants her to serve him physically and serve him sexually. And you can stay in my house, and I'll make sure you have food. But get out there and get me some water. Think about her life for just a second. She's, she's, you know that she's being talked, nobody wants, the reason why she's going out in the middle of the day, because nobody wants to be with her, right? She's not the type of person 
the people in polite society hang out with. I don't want you hanging out with my kids because I don't want you influencing them, right? Think about what's gone on in this woman's life. Think about how broken and used she feels. She's got nowhere else to go. It's not like she can go get a job. Women didn't have jobs then, especially in this culture. They, weren't, they were treated like property. It wasn't until Christianity came around that women had, were seen as equals. You look that up, that's the truth. She was, seen as, as less, she was seen as less than equal among people who were seen as property. She was used, abused, spit out, and the only thing she was good for was bring me food and water and give me sex. I won't even call you my wife. That's who met her. She turns and she says, Jesus, I perceive you're a prophet. Then she wants to get into this doctrinal thing. Our fathers worshipped on this. What is she doing? She's deflecting. First she deflects by outward stuff. Then he cuts her to the heart. And she goes, you're a prophet. And then she wants to talk doctrine with him? Why? Because she doesn't want him close to that pain. He said, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that Jerusalem's the place where we ought to worship. No, listen. Jesus says, look, I'm, I'm going to, I'll get to the correct doctrine. He goes, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. It's true. You worship what you don't know, and we worship what we do know, for salvation is of the Jews. That's correct doctrine. He goes, but the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, and the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Then, she says, I know the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. The very first person recorded in the Bible that Jesus says that he's the Messiah to is this woman. He goes, the person who's speaking to you is he. That's, that's the first person. That's the first person. The person who's, whose life has been lived at the bottom of a road grader. That's the first person that Jesus says, I'm the Messiah to. Not a Jew, not a man, a Samaritan woman who's been through five dudes and is living with someone else right now. That's the person. Why do you think that is? Because he was just about to expand her sphere of influence. He was about to change the shape of her life if, he, if she would simply let him. At this point, the disciples come back. They're totally clueless. They didn't say, oh, who do you, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water pot. She left what she came there for. She went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who has told me everything that I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? Now, they looked at her and something was different. They might not have been able to put their finger on it, but something was different. The person that the husbands would turn, avert their eyes, especially when they were with their wife, because they didn't want anybody to think that they could be the next guy with her, because she's clearly been through the whole team, right? They're like, they would avert their eyes, and the woman wouldn't talk to her, and they'd pull their kids back and say, say you know what, don't, don't be around her or, or anybody around her, right? All of a sudden, they're listening to her. Something's changed. Something has changed. And when God filled her, something changed in the way that she was so that when she went back into the town, she goes, see what God has done in my life in an instant? Could this be the Christ? And all of a sudden, an entire crowd of Samaritans is coming out to see whether or not this is the Messiah. And he has some harsh words for his um, disciples, right? Because what happened was, is they're like, hey, you need to eat something. And he's like, I have food that you don't know about. And they're like, did somebody slip him a Snickers bar? Like, that's what they're asking. Like, like, they still don't get it, right? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say, and I believe that at that time, you look over the hill and all these people are coming out of the town. He goes, look up. The fields are white to harvest. You guys went into town to buy food and didn't even bring anybody out to see me? And you're supposed to know who I am? This woman goes into town, and here comes the entire town. You guys need to be more like her. Because everybody needs Jesus. Because you know what? Even the people in that town that seemed like they had it together didn't have it together. And there was also more pain and suffering, and people are coming out. And he's like, the fields are white to harvest. And look, verse 39. He says, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word the woman who testified. 
he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with him, and he freaked his disciples out and decided to stay in town for two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now they're talking to her. Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and know that he indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. So it's not just about see what he's done for me. The whole thing brought about people who, who would never be contacted anyways. What's happening in your own life? What things have happened in your own life that you can honestly look at and say, if that had never happened, I would have never met these people. I know that's true in my own life. I'll take just a couple of minutes and, and just a couple of minutes and bear with me. Um, we have a, a lot of kids. Our youngest daughter, you know, if you've been around here long enough, you know that our youngest daughter um, has special needs, significant needs. And, and if you don't have a child with significant special needs, you, you, you have no idea what we go through. I'm glad you don't know what we go through, but it's very difficult. And, but I'll say this, it's mostly because of my wife, Valerie, who's, who's awesome and amazing. Um, but, but there are people that we know. There are therapists and, and, and teachers and, 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 and more therapists and, and, and other people who have special needs kids that we would never have been in contact with if we'd never had Caitlin. Does it make it any less hard? No. Do I wish Caitlin didn't have special needs? Absolutely. But you know what? God can take, he says he turns everything to good for those who love, and, and, and are, love him and are called according to his purpose. He t- makes everything good, even, even this. What about your life? Think about it. Think about maybe how, how, how you might have lost your job or, 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 or lost a loved one or, or suffered relationship pain and, and things broke off. And, and what that's done for you. And think about how that has maybe, I want to tell you that it's not, it might feel like something's been cut out of your life and you've lost it, but the reality is, is all he's done is changed your shape and allowed you to come in contact with a different group of people. The same thing that happened with the Samaritan woman, the same thing in the last couple of minutes, the same thing that happened with, um, with, the, with the, uh, the guy who was demon-possessed, right, that Jesus healed, and the, the whole thing with the pigs, and, and he, he sent the demons into the pigs, and, and the whole town came out, and they were freaked out, and the, and the guy who Jesus had rescued from living naked in a cemetery and cutting himself with rock and, rocks and being possessed by a thousand demons, when, they, when Jesus went to get back into the boat, <laughs> the guy's like, I'm coming with you. He's now sane and clothed and cleaned up in his own mind. He goes, I'm coming with you, Jesus. And, and Jesus goes, no. No? No. No. Go back and tell everybody what, you, what I've done for you. And you can read, and the next time Jesus came back across the lake, the entire region came out to see him. It was called Decapolis. It meant 10 cities. The entire region came out to see him. Why? Because they saw the pain and suffering that this guy was in, and they saw the change in his life. And they knew that if God could do that for him, God could do something for them. And they came to see him. Don't you think that God might be doing that right now? In your life? With your pain? With what seems bad? Don't you think that God could be doing that in your life right now? We need to have a different perspective on it. And here's the key, and I'll give this to you in the last minute. And then we'll pray. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. This is Paul talking, and he says, and he was the least of the apostles. What he says was he was the least of the apostles. He meant this, that I was the guy who was actually, I was so caught up in, in, in making things work in my own way that I was willing to kill other Christians. That's what he was doing before he became Paul. He was Saul, and he was killing Christians. God got a hold of his life actually showed up in his life, most of the New Testament, written by that same guy. But this is what he says. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. God's divine favor and his divine power influencing my life, it can't be in vain. It can't be for nothing. I'll say this again, God is not the author of pain and tragedy, but if we will allow God's grace into our life and have patience and go, God, this really, quite frankly, sucks, but I know that you're God, so pick it up and use it. 
put your power around that and use that and change me and change this and use it for your glory. This is what happens. God could take a murderer and make him an apostle. He could take a, 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 a broken woman and make her the salvation, the, the impetus for the salvation of her whole town. He could take anything. And so can he take you and I? He can and he will if we will simply let him. Let's pray. Father, I just ask, Lord God, that right now you would remind us of the circumstances of our life and that we are not alone in them. That by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we pray together in a minute to reaffirm our faith in Christ, Lord, that if there's anyone here who has withheld themselves from you in small ways or maybe their entire life, that you would grant us the ability to surrender to you right now. And so if you would, pray with me. And if you're a Christian, if you would reaffirm your faith as we pray, and, uh, and if you're not a Christian or maybe you've walked away from God, um, maybe make this real. Just pray with me. Say, dear God, you know that I'm a sinner and I cannot change that on my own. But I believe that Jesus Christ is your son. That he died in my place. And he rose from the dead. So that I could be forgiven. Please forgive me. And all that I am. Every circumstance in my life. I surrender to you now. In Jesus name. Amen.